0: that's what she said is fueled by Gatorade. Whatever path you take to greatness, Gatorade is there to fuel it. Greatness starts with G. The Peabody and Emmy Award winning 30 for 30 film series presents Once Upon a Time in Queens, a four part documentary event about the city, the swagger and the wild ride of the 1986 Mets. The documentary explores the epic tale of one of baseball's most dominant and iconoclastic teams and their legendary World Series comeback. Hear from former Mets players and fans, including Daryl Strawberry, Keith Hernandez, Bill Burr, Cindy Lauper, and more. Watch parts one and two of Once Upon a Time in Queens, Tuesday, September 14th at 8 p.m. Eastern on ESPN, followed by parts three and four Wednesday, September 15th, also at 8 p.m. Eastern, available to stream on ESPN Plus and the ESPN app immediately after its premiere. Plus, Keyshawn, J. Will, and Max on ESPN Radio Monday through Friday from 6 to 10 a.m. Eastern, bringing you the insights from former number one pick in the NFL draft, Keyshawn Johnson, along with number two pick in the NBA draft, Jay Williams, and host Max Kellerman on the latest news from the NFL and college football. Tune in to hear them debate the biggest and most pressing topics. That's Keyshawn, J. Will, and Max on ESPN Radio and ESPN News, or listen to the podcast of the show. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me.
1: Hi, my name is Lechina Robinson, and my dilemma is that I have an unhealthy addiction to hardcover. Sex- viral notebooks. I have a million of them at my house. Some of them I've only used a page, maybe two pages, sometimes five, but as soon as I get to another store, Target, Michaels, doesn't matter. I see a notebook that I absolutely have to have. And it's gotten out of control at this point.
0: Okay, so I feel you on this one because I too used to have a cute notebook obsession and the evidence of that remains on my bookshelves and in my drawers and stuffed in various places. Uh, And one solution that I had to cure the habit was to think big picture. Whenever I'm tempted to buy stuff I don't really need, I try to think about how the more of us that choose to buy fewer things and be more selective about the stuff we spend on, the less stuff is made, right? Supply and demand. It's very idealistic. We're so far gone when it comes to landfills and such that it probably makes no difference. But when I am tempted, I at least try filtering it through that thought process first. Am I adding to empty consumerism and wasteful manufacturing? And if I'm being honest, I do that with, you know, stuff like cheap Halloween costumes and party favors, but never abandon being better because you can't be perfect, right? So think about that. Second, if it's about the good feeling that you get when you buy it and look at it and write on a page or two, could you do that? And then when it's lost its novelty, maybe make it part of a care package for a shelter that houses women and children or a cause that gathers gifts for kids that aren't getting Christmas presents. You know, give it a second life if you're not going to use it. And it would probably bring joy to a kiddo somewhere as a, a diary or a notebook for drawings or something. That's what she said. That's what she said is presented by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Hello, friends. I am in a fantastic mood today. Uh, Despite a tiny bit of lingering party voice from a big weekend, it was, of course, the start of the NFL season. So there was all of that excitement and a whole day spent on my couch watching football. But I also pulled off one of my best parties yet. So in the past, my birthday parties have been pretty epic. So we did overboard theme on a boat, gals and gowns, dudes in construction worker attire uh, as a throwback to that old movie. Golf pros and tennis hose caddyshack theme on a boat. We recreated Ferris Bueller's Day Off around the city. Uh, Saturday Night Live theme was one of them. Going to the SNL Museum exhibit in full costume. Harry Carey's Cheeseburger Cheeseburger. And then finished with I'm on a boat. Yes, on a boat. You're sensing a theme. So this year's I think was among the best I've done. So I'm such a big holiday person. And I refused to let 2020 steal my joy and all the big holiday parties I usually have for good. So I invented Do Over Day during which we would celebrate every holiday that 2020 and COVID stole from us last year. Uh, So we did them all over in one day. We started St. Patrick's Day at an Irish bar, then 4th of July in a park, Halloween at an arcade bar with an 80s theme, Thanksgiving in the park outside Wrigley, eating a full Thanksgiving dinner, throwing around a football, Christmas at Rudolph's, Mariah Carey Dance Fest. Uh, It's a Christmas-themed bar in Wrigleyville. And then New Year's Eve, you guessed it, was on a boat. But when the boat had to cancel... We pivoted to a tiki bar near the lake where we could still see the fireworks. And we just pretended, you know, we're those people who fly to Bali to be the first to get to ring in the new year. And it worked. It was so much fun. We had a different costume for every holiday. They had to all fit in one backpack and we had to go place to place and do quick changes. Uh, and I have to say, sorry, 2020. You didn't steal our good times. You didn't steal our magic, our friendship, our gratitude for being alive and healthy and all together celebrating Um And it it wasn't lost on me that it was all on Saturday, the 20th anniversary of 9-11, which is a day to remember and to reflect, but also a day to celebrate being alive and sharing all the good stuff with the people that you love. So I hope you all had a fantastic weekend as well. I hope you're pumped for the start of the NFL season. I hope your team, unlike mine, won. Uh, Don't forget to send me suggestions for guests, by the way. Do it on Twitter, at Sarah Spain, or go to Apple or iTunes. Review the podcast Put your suggestions in there, uh, and while you're there, rate it five stars. It really helps. Please do it. <laughs> okay. On to this week's guest, Lachina Robinson. She's an ESPN basketball analyst and host for women's college basketball and the WNBA. She's the analyst for the Atlanta Dream. She covered the Olympics in Tokyo this year. She has two podcasts, ESPN's Around the Rim and SiriusXM's XM's huge fan, plus a consulting company called Stretch Beyond. She is a busy lady. Uh, we talked about growing up in a blended family of 16 children, falling in love with basketball late, excelling, playing at weight forest working behind the scenes in sports before sort of discovering the magic she was on the mic and then some of the highlights of a very big year for her. Enjoy the conversation.
1: That's what she said.
0: So one of my favorite things about having ESPN people on the podcast, if I don't know them very well, is I just get to be nosy and find out all sorts of things about the people that I work with. And right off the top, reading about Lachina Robinson, blended family of 16 children. Okay. All right. We need to start with childhood. How do you get a word in edgewise? How do you get a full plate of food? How do you, you know, have your, all your stuff ready for sports every day without taking someone else's shoe or shin guard or something? Tell me about growing up.
1: Well, the first thing my mother would absolutely demand that I say is that not all those children are hers. (laughs) Um, So they are all blood related, right? So they're either um, my mother's children or my father's children. The interesting fact is that I have no siblings that have the same mom and dad as I do. Yeah. Um, And so with that being said, my parents separated when I was very young. So my time spent with siblings over the years was like summers with my dad's side. And then I lived with my mom and her kids. So she's got five, including me. My dad has 12 children, including me. Um, so yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time together. I can name every single one of my siblings, which I won't do right now for <laughs> everyone on the podcast. Um, I always used to say it, I didn't have enough time to tell the story. I would need to get on Oprah, but why not why not do it with Sarah Spain?
0: Right there um, you go. <laughs> but yeah, so
1: it was it was an interesting dynamic growing up for sure.
0: There are joyful big families. There are big families that are complicated. And I would imagine with different mothers and fathers and figuring out schedules and who has whom when, um, it could either be contentious or people could find a way to co-parent and make it work. For the most part, growing up, did it feel like there was good communication between all the parts or was it sticky at times? Oh, it seemed
1: like it seemed like the communication was great. I mean, there's a reason why my father has 12 kids. He is a smooth talker. He is a very organized guy. Um, <laughs> he is clearly very ambitious um, and he's a big family man. So it was extremely important to him. My father was an only child. So that was always his excuse as to why he needed to have 12 kids. Um, but it actually went very well. Um, one thing I can distinctly remember about my dad is that he could remember a phone number off the top of his head. And obviously he did a lot of calling and checking in with various kids and kids of, of moms of kids. Um, but we would stop at the, at the phone booth all the time, right? Like that was back in the days where there weren't cell phones. He would check his pager. We would go to the phone booth. It would be one of my siblings. We would (laughs) check in and you know, that's it. So, uh, it, it, it went very smoothly for us.
0: So you grew up with your mom, um, in Alexandria, Virginia and her four other children. Was it, were those four siblings from the same dad? And did you ever feel like you weren't as much a part of that as, as the ones who were all, you know, same mom and dad?
1: Yeah. So no, um, my mother, (laughs) this really needs to be on Oprah. So my mother was (laughs) married four times and five kids, we have Let's see, five kids, four different dads. Um, so we were all kind of living similar experiences, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. But it was it was a lot of fun. You know, my mother was a single mom during spurts of that time when she wasn't obviously married. Um, but we started out with four girls. My little brother wasn't born until I was seventeen years old to get ready to go oh. off to college. So that house was wild, (laughs) Um, you know, fighting for bathroom time, all the things you can imagine. But um, no, my mother was awesome and is my inspiration and is is been the backbone for my life for my entire life.
0: So what number were you in that run?
1: I was next to oldest. So I had one older sister, two younger sisters and then my baby brother.
0: So that means that you had three different times where there was a new husband in the house that was your father figure sort and then yes. was gone, right? How, how was that for you?
1: You know, because my dad was so active and consistent in my life as my dad, um, that to me was the most important thing for me growing up, right? Like we talk about girl dad, all the girl dads yeah. all the time. But um, one thing I've noticed with some of my friends growing up is I really believe that the differences between like kind of how my life went in, in some stretches um, and and how their lives went. And this is where my observations, but also theirs, had to do with my relationship with my dad. Right, my ability to communicate effectively in a male-dominated field. Right, mm-hmm. in a room full of men, in, in places and spaces where, um, you know, I, I was just so comfortable with that, that dynamic. My dad also has eight boys, so you know, I had eight brothers on his side of the family. <laughs> um, so you know, that to me was, was the biggest thing as my mom kind of navigated her life and found her way when it came to the male figures is that my dad was just so present and so consistent. And so, you know, what everyone else did was not yeah. a good deal to me.
0: That's great though. Cause I mean, you hear these stories of people whose, whose parents have, are bringing different people in and that can be really challenging, especially if those people aren't great people or if their relationships aren't solid. Um, well, so to have that through line, you know? Yeah. Well, and I don't,
1: you know, I think everyone that comes into your life ha- makes an impact on you, right? Like marriages end; those aren't good things when they, yeah. when they happen, you know? So there's, there's obviously um, good and bad that comes with it. But, um, you know, I just think that because my, my mom and dad were so strong and so steady in who they were and their character and things like that, like, whether it was who they were married to at the time, or whatever situation may be happening in our lives, I just felt like we were we were always in a pretty good spot.
0: Your dad was an independent newspaper owner and publisher, uh, despite not finishing high school. So you see him, you know, make himself an, into an entrepreneur, and also you know get into the world of media. How much of an impact do you think that had, or was it not till later in life when you sort of came around and, and made that connection?
1: Yeah, I mean, my dad lives a very complicated life. Um, Him owning a newspaper was, (laughs) God, um, without getting into a two hour long podcast, um, it was his most legit job throughout (laughs) his his life, right? Um, And I was not really aware of it at the time. Um, my mother talked about it. I have copies of the newspaper. Like my aunt worked at the newspaper, you know, it was just, it was kind of like a family thing at the time, but I, I wasn't really aware of it as a kid, but I do believe that my dad has such a gift of communication of, you know, wanting to disseminate information, wanting to help people. He's just been, um, you know, kind of that person, he's that guy who, when, when anyone in the community has an issue, they pick up the phone and they call him.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and so that's always been inspiring to me to see how much people adore him, how they rely on him. And I do think it has impacted the person that I am, the media side of it, not so sure. <laughs> um, but again, because he has, um, you know, just been, um, someone that people can um, rely on and somewhat as a public figure in the community. Like I feel like that part of it, I I definitely um, tried to take on as I was coming up.
0: Okay. So I read that you were a cheerleader and that's where you thought you belonged. And then you get up to six feet four or somewhere near there early on in high school and realize that you should check out basketball. Why wasn't that the, you know, expectation earlier in life? I mean, I just, That seems wild to me that at no point growing up would it feel like, hey, she's going to be pretty tall and let's give this a shot. Well,
1: first of all, my mother didn't even realize that I was tall until she tried to give me like a hand-me-down dress for my sister. (laughs) Now my sister (laughs) um, is five, six, I'm six, four. And so she tried to give me one of her dresses that she wore when she was four years old. And she was like, this is not fitting. And I don't understand what's happening. Um, and it, you know, dawned on her, obviously after a while, when I started to outgrow my sister, she was like, Holy smokes, you are growing like a weed. Um, but I did try basketball in the sixth grade. I just hated it. I was like, Hmm. Oh, this is not fun because my dad was kind of like that. Um, that uh community basketball hero like you know won all the project championships Mm -hmm. and you know he was he was the man and so we would go to his games i knew he played there were no female athletes on my mom's side that wasn't even a thing my mother was like listen if you're gonna be sweating your hair out if people are gonna be stepping (laughs) on your feet we won't we won't be there um so but as i got older. My older sister started to play. Actually, two of my older sisters started to play basketball, which was like, okay, but I still wanted to hang out with my friends. So I was a cheerleader. I was like, I'm going where my girls are. I want to wear this short skirt, get a little (laughs) bit of attention. Uh, And it wasn't until a guy in my community just kept coming around. His name is Michael J. He was like telling my mom she needs to play basketball. She needs to play basketball. And at this point, I was probably in the eighth grade And he's like, she's so tall, you know, and then he just mentioned to her that I could get a college scholarship. And that was Mm. it. She pretty much dropped me off at practice and (laughs) never came back to get me.
0: How quickly did you learn to love it after not liking it early on?
1: Right away, because I was in such a... I was in a difficult stretch as a teenage girl where I was taller than everyone. My self-esteem was really low. Puberty hit me way late. <laughs> um, so I was somewhat miserable. I couldn't figure out where in the world I fit in. I was like, what am I supposed to be doing with this? Right. Right. And you go to basketball practice and finally it's like, okay, so being tall has its advantages. Mm -hmm. I started making friends and, you know, learning to communicate and all those things that teenage girls kind of start struggling with over time. Um, and so it, it just I started to feel like there was a place for me and, and to really grow and connect in a way that I could nowhere else. So that's where it started. And then I realized that I was just ultra competitive. I wasn't talented at all. I don't think anyone would ever say <laughs> I've been naturally talented. I'm very clumsy. All the things that, you know, make for bad athletes. I, I feel like I have it. But, um, yeah, it, it definitely started with opening the door of um friends in a safe space and then it was just that i i I am ultra competitive
0: i talk about that all the time that i don't know if i hadn't been an athlete and i was an athlete from the beginning like as soon as i i think my first word was ball but if i hadn't done that how much tougher it would have been and i was only six feet when i was 12 but that felt way too tall and awkward and i puberty didn't hit me well and i was like if i didn't have this thing to feel good about Of why I'm tall and strong and athletic. If I didn't use that, it would have just felt like such a burden. And instead it became this door that opened up competitiveness and leadership and all the other stuff. Um, so despite saying that you weren't talented and that you were clumsy, you still went to wake forest and you played for four years and you left the school third in school history with blocks and 15th in rebounds and all, I think ACC at freshman year and all that stuff. Um, so just talk about that experience at Wake Forest and um, first of the kids to go to college.
1: Yeah, yeah. First of the kids and of the 16 siblings, only two of us have have graduated college. Uh, my mother went to college. She was all about education. So it was something that she preached about. But um, this whole college scholarship thing was new to our family. I mean, I remember someone showing up for an official visit and we were totally unprepared. My mother was like, oh, is that tonight? <laughs> like you know because she's got a house full of kids we're like right you know they're they're pulling up and we're supposed to you know be entertaining some of the you know one of the top coaches at the time in the ACC um but it was it was interesting um you know Wake Forest was a place that I ended up for several reasons number one because I needed um, a small school, you know, 4,000 undergrad at the time. It maybe has grown a little bit, but that's a very small power five school, 4,000 undergrad. But I I loved the individual attention from professors. I could play in the ACC, but not really be that good. So at the time when I came in, we were at the bottom, bottom of the ACC. So I knew I was going to get playing time. Um, some of the other schools that were recruiting me, I was like, okay, they're recruiting me to be the 14, 15 player on the bench. I just want to play because I knew that I had some time to make up for. All these girls had been playing since so they were like six or seven right. years old. I was like, I need to get on the court. And see what my potential is. Um, but it also had its challenges. I would say, um, trying to integrate myself into a predominantly white school, um, being away right. from, from home, you know, for the first time, like many college students, athletes are not have to face, but it was incredible. It, I could, probably couldn't have made a better decision as far as a place where I, I needed to be to, um, work my way through some of those challenging dynamics. I had a a black woman as a head coach, which was unheard of. Mm -hmm. I believe she was the first black head coach um, ever in in, in the ACC um, for women's basketball. So that was important to my mom and I. But yeah, I mean, it was the best four years of my life, I always say, so far. And Mm -hmm.
0: uh,
1: I I had a great time.
0: We'll get right back to the interview. But first, what is your favorite word?
1: My favorite word is intentional. Intentional. You know, It's been something that has been a a theme throughout my career and in my life. I used to be, I will say as a kid, the one that always used to ride the wave, right? So whatever everyone else wanted to do, I was in. Whatever was happening, let's go for it. But I just found that in my adult life, that didn't work out very well. (laughs) Um, And so um, I started to just be more intentional about my brand, who I was, the impact I wanted to have in the world, what I stood for, all of those things. So that's probably my favorite word.
0: First, I love that word and I love that sentiment. So good on you for understanding that the focus and intent that you needed to thrive and shine and then and then doing it. So intentional, done with intention, design or purpose. Circa the 1520s. Uh, it's a great one. Speaking of great words. You're going to learn today. The word of the week is... In honor of Lachina's unique upbringing and many siblings, a new word to add to our vocabularies: philoprogenitive, circa 1817, meaning inclined to the production of offspring, or fond of children. It's a combination of phil, meaning love, or having affinity for, and Latin progenitus, meaning begot or begotten. So it can refer to the production of offspring or loving of them, and philoprogenitiveness. The love of offspring, instinctive love of the young in general, is from 1815. So both were first attested in translations of Johann Spursheim. This was a German physician who was one of the chief proponents of the pseudoscience phrenology, which believed that you could look at the bumps and shape of a cranium to decide someone's character and intelligence and stuff. And phrenologists use this word, philo. Progenitive to designate a specific bump or organ of the brain that they thought was the seat of a parent's instinctual love for his or her children, it is a not oft used word, but it felt useful for us to learn so in a sentence, lach's philoprogenitive progenitive father produced enough children to field two basketball teams, and their competitive family gatherings helped make her a hoops star now let's get back to the interview degree in sociology, what did you think you wanted to do well I mean it-
1: you're not living unless you change your major, like five times. So <laughs> I came in saying, I want to be a lawyer. So I was just major in like history or something like that undergrad. And then, you know, find my way. And then I realized how much reading and writing I was going to have to do. And I was like, no, thanks next. So then I decided I wanted to be a psychologist because I wanted to talk people through their problems <laughs> and come and lay on my couch and, um, You know, I've always been someone who who just cares so much about people and what they're experiencing in life. And I was like, that'll be perfect. And then I took the intro class, almost failed, (laughs) more science than I could have ever imagined. So I was like, I'm out of here. Then I landed on sociology, honestly, because I really did my homework on the coursework. And I took classes like social inequality and sport, sport, the sociology of sport. Um, You know, death and dying, marriage and the family. And I mean, when you have 16 siblings, you're like, yeah, this sounds like some stuff I need to be be learning about, family dynamics. No, I'm just kidding. Um, But no, I just have always been um, intrigued by people and how they connect to society and, you know, what shapes them, what makes them who they are and um, just some of those things. So it, it was more that I wanted to enjoy the classes I was taking in undergrad.
0: I say a lot on this podcast that if I went back, I would take so many classes in stuff like sociology, human ecology, like the study of people and how we communicate, um, behavioral psychology, all that stuff. Like, that's the stuff I find so interesting now as you move through the world and meet all different kinds of people and all that stuff. Um, Yeah. So you you have this great connection with a bunch of your coaches growing up, high school, college. Um, Was there a part of you that ever thought, oh, I want to stick around and be a coach?
1: Absolutely not. Um, (laughs) My experience as a student athlete watching my coaches and what they had to put up with, with me and my teammates and our parents and the boosters and the athletic department. I mean, those it was just too much. It was more time than I ever wanted to spend in a lot more stress than I thought I could handle. I also really just felt like I was not cut out for the heartbreak of recruiting, like spending all of that time investing. And I knew that was going to be a big part of, of what I would do or what the expectation would be. And so, um, I mean, God, just hearing no over and over again after you invested so much time in these young people who just decide, oh, I'm going to go to this school because they have better flat screens in the locker room. Right. Like I'm not, I'm not cut out for that. So I I knew very early on that, um, yeah, coaching, coaching was not going to be my thing.
0: What I don't understand is how super competitive people become coaches because you do have an impact on what happens, but only to a certain extent, you can't actually be on the court. I can't do it. I, I oh just, if I want something done, I'm just doing it myself. I don't really trust very many people to get shit done as well as I think I could get shit done. So and I'm you like, have... I have to be able to be like, all right, follow the game plan. What are you doing? <laughs> yes, exactly.
1: Well, and that's so much of being a successful coach that I think people don't realize. Like, after working at Georgia Tech for seven years, I worked very closely with the head coach at the time, Michelle Joseph. And coaching is like 10% coaching, it's 90% people management. Yeah. It's staff, parents, you know, fundraising, it's, I mean, you know, all of those other aspects. How do you motivate
0: different people and keep people, yeah, just. I mean, it's
1: one of the hardest jobs. I mean, I just, yeah, I was like, I'm good. (laughs)
0: Yeah. So, yeah, let's talk about that. You were at the ACC administration offices for one season right after school, and then you end up at Georgia Tech, like you said, for seven years. So um, you did a bunch of stuff. Administrative assistant of recruiting, director of uh, basketball operations, special assistant to the head coach. Again, was this just, I love basketball so much now that I want to be near it, but I'm not really sure what I want to do?
1: That was exactly what it was, Sarah. Like, I had zero plan coming out of college. (laughs) I had a small window where I could have gone overseas to go pro, uh, but I had an injury my senior year that made me have to sit out after I graduated for an entire year. Um, And so I was like, by the time I did that, I got out of shape. And I was never one of those kids that was like out shooting until the lights went out. Like, I loved basketball and um, you know, again, I was competitive, but I wanted to get my nails done. I wanted to go <laughs> to the movies. I wanted to do a lot of other things. Right. Um, but I wanted to stay close to the game. That was the one thing I did know. And I was so inspired by watching Pat Summit. I remember one thing vividly in my mind. I think it was my senior year. I went to the Final Four in Greensboro, which was very close to Winston-Salem. And I watched um, it might have been a regional. I watched Pat Summit coach and I was like just in awe of the impact that she was having on these women and thinking about how the game had impacted me. So I was like, I want to stay close to the game. I don't know where I got an internship at the ACC office, which was great because I got a taste of uh, championship operations. So we ran all the major sport championships for the ACC Um, You know, I got to visit all the different campuses in the league and see what their administrators do. So I was like, okay, maybe I'll be an athletics director. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of in the back of my mind when I went to Georgia Tech, staying close to the game, but eventually being an athletics director. And then that, yeah, was not the plan after a while.
0: They ended up hiring you to do radio broadcasts. What was the impetus for that? Were you just chatting up a storm in the offices and they thought they'd redirect it to something useful or... <laughs> right
1: <laughs> let's get this energy somewhere yeah well you know I hit
0: this I hit
1: this I call it a midlife crisis but I'm like 26 years old okay I
0: think John Mayer called it quarter life crisis there you go yes. yeah that's where I was
1: um where I just was like am I really going to become an athletics director where I have to like sit in an office and you know just it just did not wear your it was colored not shirt
0: with the right. I'm like, <laughs> I'm too,
1: I'm too young for this. I'm too energetic. <laughs> I need to be close to the game. So I had hit this crisis where I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do in my life. Um, and I randomly, so part of my responsibilities at Georgia tech where, you know, I ran game operations. So even though I wasn't coaching, I had to be at every game, make sure the ball kids were in order, make sure the boosters were taken care of, you know, marketing had their flyers, all that stuff. And uh, one day they were like, Hey, you know, would you be interested in filling in on the radio broadcast? And I was like, sure. You know, because once the game started, I didn't have a ton to do. I just had to make sure everything was ready for the game. I was like, sure, I'll sit in. So, you know, I've got my khakis on and my Georgia Tech polo and I'm bringing my popcorn over there. And I'm like, okay, sure. What do you guys want me to do? And they're like, you know, just, just, just talk the game. So I put a heads- the headset on and, and it was life changing, Sarah. I mean, you know how it is when you finally figure out what it is you love to do. Um, it just clicked right away. I was like, wow, like this is did not feel like work. I can wake up and do this every day and feel like I'm not going to work. And that's basically what I've been doing ever since.
0: That's awesome. So how long uh, after that did you get spotted by ESPN? And were you on television broadcasts from that point? or I mean, radio, but like the public broadcast from that point on, were you always a part of the Georgia Tech games?
1: Well, yeah. So I was... Um... And I was glad I I loved radio. Like if I could go back now and like, cause you don't have to worry about what you look like and all those Mm -hmm. things. Like radio is a great place to learn. So I did that for a couple of years. Um, And while I was doing that, I was checking into opportunities to actually get on television. Like, can I do this at the next level? All of a sudden my aspirations and my dreams were just growing. Um, But people, were looking at me like I was crazy. They were like, mm-hmm. you are not a broadcast or communications major. You have never been on television before. You have zero experience. Like, mm-hmm. what are you doing here? Like, why are you here? So, um, you know, I got all the no's and this isn't going to work. And then you know how it happens. Like you just continue to send out all your little DVDs and then mm-hmm. one day somebody gets sick.
0: Yeah. So kids, back in too. the day, we used to have yeah. to make <laughs> DVDs and then I had to buy yeah. a DVD burner. And then burn copies and then snail mail them to people. I mean, Sarah, you just get a YouTube channel and an iPhone and you're set. <laughs> yeah.
1: These kids have no idea. I still have no a lot idea. of those DVDs and, and, and even getting your radio broadcast to a CD. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can, oh, yeah. I got stories for days, mm-hmm. but anyway, so, you know, they, they thought I was crazy and then somebody gets sick and they're like, okay, we do have this one spot because we don't have anyone else. So come on, let's just go. And it was on a regional network, CSS, which is not, no longer in existence, um, so I finally had myself on television and, you know, you send that out. But what, where I got a break was one year I went to NAQUA, which at the time was um, it's women leaders now. But, you know, National Association for Collegiate Women Athletic Administrators. And they were holding an auction. And I'm just sitting there. You know, I'm broke. I'm, you know, I, there's no way I can afford anything in this auction, but I'm just listening. And I did have one intention there's that word, Um, coming to this event. And that was to meet Carol Stiff. So I was Mm -hmm. like, okay, I see that this woman has ESPN by her name. I need to meet her and at least show her who I am. Uh, I was very good at that networking. I had no experience in broadcasting, didn't know what I was doing, but I was very good at connecting people, connecting the dots. So I meet Carol Stiff, you know, like, yes, that's great. Get into this auction, and they had this auction item to visit ESPN during Selection Monday. And I was like, oh, my God, if I could get to ESPN, holy smoke. So the auction's going, the price is going up and up and up. And I'm like, all right, I'm out of this. So suddenly they get a bid from a woman named Mary McElroy, who was my mentor. She actually hired me to come to Georgia Tech. And I was like, oh, Mary's bidding on this. So finally, my wheels are turning. And I'm like, I need to, I need her to win this. She right. ends up winning, winning the bid. I dart to the back of the room and say, Mary, I have to have this opportunity. Like, I will pay you in installments 50 bucks a month. <laughs> you know, it ended up being like $700, something like that. I'll pay you in installments, just please. So she agreed. Wow. I am going... Yeah, I know. Crazy. Cause she, she was doing it for the cause. Like she wasn't really like, Oh, right. I want to go to ESPN. She just wanted to, to, to help out. So right. she gives it to me. I go to ESPN selection Monday. I meet Sage Steele. I meet, you know, obviously Carol Stiff, who then introduced me to Tina Thornton, who at the time was running women's basketball. Tina Thornton happened to be a Wake Forest graduate.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we clicked right away on that. Um, and in the next year, I actually was on ESPN. So this was maybe three years after my first radio broadcast. It may have been less than that, Sarah. Um, but my first game, I have to tell you this really quick. My first game that I got hired for ESPN was the Maggie Dixon Classic mm-hmm. at Madison Square Garden. It was Pat <laughs> Summit's Lady Vols against wow. Vivian Stringer's Rutgers Scarlet Knights. It was a doubleheader. The other teams were Boston college and Baylor for Brittany Griner's freshman wow. year. Wow! I did both games. I said, this has to be an act of God because there is <laughs> no way I'm here. And this is has to be what I'm supposed to do because this is just, no one could have yeah. written this
0: story. I mean, yeah. to start at MSG, I've still never been to MSG for any reason. Isn't that ridiculous? What? I, I know. I know. It's Sarah wild. Spain. I know it I, has to happen. I know yes. I got to. I got to make it out there. So your first full season of being an analyst for ESPN and at the time Box Sports South was 2010. Um, when did you get in and start working with the Atlanta Dream?
1: So I started with the Dream in 08. Um, so that actually happened a little earlier. I was, and they started on radio. So the first year they didn't actually do a broadcast. So 08 would have been radio. And then 2009, they started television. And 2009 was when I had that. Maggie Dixon classic game. It was December was the last month of 09 with the SPN, but long story short. Yeah. So it was 08. The dream um, was just coming to Atlanta. I was actually a part of a group that brought the team to Atlanta in a way. Oh, I mean, cool. I'm, literally, I'm well, I'm an administrative assistant. So I'm setting up meetings and meeting people. I'm not making any decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm on the administrative side. But Georgia Tech was obviously involved. Stacy Abrams, um, Kathy Betty, you know, a group of women who were bringing Lisa Borders, were bringing the team. So I was kind of a part of that mix. I knew the conversations were happening. And then as soon as they were like, we're having a team, I was at every event. Like, I need to be on the broadcast. Like, yeah. however that happens, you know, I need to be a part of this. So, yeah, it was in 2008 that um, that that all started.
0: And you ended up doing the first 11 straight seasons of Atlanta Dream Hoops in existence as as yeah. their broadcaster analyst. Um, and then they had to make a switch. And from what I read, it was it was budgetary. Um, but what, what was it like on your end to be a part of that team from the start? And then to be, to be, I don't know what the best word is, not fired, not laid off, um, stepped undervalued. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, so it was devastating. Um, you know, Bob Rathbun and I are still good friends to this day. We just so enjoyed calling those games together, watching this team grow, you know, we had kind of became an, an integral part of um, this women's basketball space in the city of Atlanta and this budding team. They had been to three WNBA finals, which was unheard of really for a team that was this young in, in its existence. And I would say, underestimated in a way like they, I mean, there was no way anyone ever said, Oh, Atlanta's going to go to three finals. No people were pissed when Atlanta showed up at three finals. So, <laughs> um, but you know, I just, I just feel like what they offered Bob and I to, to stay with the dream at the time. And don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm as humble pie as they get. Um, you know, I understand that I'm just, I'm just thankful and honored to be in this space and to have the opportunity that I have to get back to this game. But it was just, we made a joint decision that we just felt like, you know, what was on the table was just um, an offer that we had to refuse.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But then new ownership comes in. Our girl Renee Montgomery's in charge. Well, at least partly in charge. And this season ends up being a return, um, not just for you, but um, the the whole look of it. it was all black women on the call. Right.
1: Yes. What was that yes. like for you, man? Um, well, first of all, to get the call to come back to the dream was awesome, right? Like it was a moment where I was like, okay, maybe someone does understand how hard we've worked over the years and how much this means to to us and to me. And um, to get that call from Renee, um, you know, I think I probably came close to dropping a tear. <laughs> but it was very obvious early on that Renee and Larry and Suzanne were going to do things differently for the dream. Right. Um, you know, what happened with Kelly Leffler, and, um, you know, there were a lot of changes made in those last few years of the team where the organization just did not reflect the culture of Atlanta. And that was an important aspect of what this new ownership group wanted to bring back. Like this team, this organization should look like the city. It should reflect the diversity of the the WPA.
0: And the league. <laughs> right.
1: Exactly. Um, obviously, they believe in women, black women in ownership. They want to see black women as broadcasters and all these different spaces, not just on the court. So, um, you know, to do it with th- with three young women that I have just watched grow throughout their career was also really just it, it was a, it was a great moment. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it, it sent a message that for sure there's some changes here and. Um, you know, that the value of Black women will will be seen in all aspects of, of what they're doing.
0: Let's talk about Around the Rim, this podcast. And um, like, first of all, when you were doing all your gigs as a studio host, as an analyst, uh, as a, uh, you know, working for The Dream, was there a part of you that felt like, oh, there's still something I'm I'm not having the time to talk about or things I want to say that I don't have a space for. What what inspired you to add a women's basketball podcast?
1: Yeah, so I was sitting in studio um, at NBA TV with Chinea Gumake, and we were you know, covering this was, I believe, when NBA TV still had broadcasting rights to some of the WNBA playoffs. So I started there in 2010 as well, um, working in studio as a primary analyst. And um, so we were sitting in there one day. We were like, we need a show. Like, first mm-hmm. of all, we kind of felt like the WNBA had a younger audience that was somewhat captivated, but couldn't connect to some of the coverage that we had for the sport. So, we right. needed some energy, we needed some diversity, but we also needed a space to just have conversation. Like, Sarah, you know this. We have the games, and then what else, right? You're not waking right. up in the morning and people on your television talking about Candace Parker's 30 point game. They're just right. not.
0: That's the biggest it's, issue. It's a highlight. It's a championship win it's passing a statistical landmark it's not a lot of debate it's not a lot of real history or or depth to it which is one of the reasons that fans can't attach to it and then argue about it over a beer
1: 100 percent. and we want to do that and so you know janae and i had this great idea we we're like well maybe we'll start on youtube you know let's figure it out so i actually flew to um new york to meet with laura Gentilly. Because um, I felt like ESPNW was my best opportunity to do this. I was like, let's see if ESPNW will back this. Went to meet with Laura, I was like, hey, today and I want to have this show. We really think women's basketball needs it. You know, you know, the, the number of black women that have covered our sport over the years, especially when I got into it, was like depressing. There just weren't, you know, black women covering a majority black sport. So, you know, we thought we just had this unique angle. And, you know, Laura was like, let me see what I can do. And to her credit, you know, she went back and, you know, pushed as much as she could. And she came back with, well, can't give you a show, but I can give you a podcast. So, Chanae and I and Tarika Foster Brasby, as you know, Mm -hmm. hey, T, uh, (laughs) we all started the podcast together, which is now, this is our sixth WNBA season, Sarah. It's It's so wild. So, yeah, I mean, I'm really proud of Around the Rim because we have given fans um, a space to hear from their favorite players, to have conversations with coaches when something major happens in women's basketball. You know, we try to to get on top of it. And it's incredible to see over the last few years, like we kind of we didn't start the wave. There was a podcast before us called Shoot Around with Beth and Debbie, which which laid the foundation. But now there are so many more spaces that you can go to to get that debate, the discussion, and the game is growing. The coverage is growing, um, but we just, you know, we still feel like there's there's so much work to do in 100%. With our sport.
0: Gotta yeah. keep gotta keep pushing. I do think that there's some pretty great social media outlets. And, and accounts that are doing some of the best kind of work it's not yes. necessarily as deep but it's exactly the kind that catches the eye of, of new viewers or gets people to really find an affinity toward a specific player or team learn the story and the stakes of what's happening and then want to go watch because of that I think that's yes. a model that ESPNW and ESPN needs to keep building on because that's such a big part of it and and You know, there's that great fan project research and I had Angela Ruggiero on this podcast talking about it, the idea that there's this fluid fan and they're less likely to just simply attach to the teams in their own city as much as they are to be drawn to a specific player or background or story and have that be their entryway into really becoming more of a, of a passionate viewer. And I feel that's like the entry for so many women's sports, um, and, and female athletes. And that's why those accounts that just kind of highlight who they are and when they're wearing a, a cute fit and when they're going and doing something cool and making their lives look aspirational instead of just like role models, like making them fierce and cool, um, is such a huge part of it. Um, and, and yeah. again, just the coverage being deeper and, and more interesting so that people can can really learn and know about what they're watching and yes. then want to want to watch more. We I, I mean, that's been a principle of sports from the beginning. If you understand what you're watching, you're much more compelled by it, even if it's NASCAR or for people who just get into hockey, you learn the rules and then you know what you're watching. And all of a sudden, it's so much more interesting to you.
1: and I always say that if it wasn't for social media like we see all the metrics right now where women's basketball is growing growing it's like if it wasn't for social media I don't believe any of this would be happening because Mm -hmm. it was it's been free marketing right even for your your local college team that doesn't get the marketing dollars that's not getting the publicity that's not getting the coverage like Twitter is a space where you can go and say hey this is what's happening over at you know, so-and-so university and we've got a game and here our fans can connect with us in this space because there's not going to be a billboard and there's not going to be a commercial and there's not going to yep. be, you know, all of the marketing that you see with, with major sports. And so um, it, Twitter in particular has given women's basketball, WNBA, a place where you will feel like you're not the only fan because you can feel like that sometimes um, because of the lack of attention the sport gets.
0: Well, and I think also the gatekeepers are removed. Right. Predominantly white cis men have been in charge of every sports page and every radio department and every television network. And if those people aren't willing to see that the future is in women's sports and how much money can be made and how much can be built with it, they're going to keep saying no. And so in these spaces that are democratized, you end up finding out what people want to hear about and they're, what they're drawn to. And all of a sudden you see this groundswell of people that are demanding more access, more coverage, more time. And that yes. eventually moves those gatekeepers into action in ways that are you know, kind of not possible before all that. Um, which has been really cool to see you had an amazing 2021 so far. You won the Mel Greenberg media award by the women's basketball coaches association. You ended up in Tokyo covering the Olympics. You've got this new podcast, huge fan on Sirius. Um, tell me quickly, like one of the biggest takeaways from, from getting to go to Tokyo.
1: Oh God. Uh, one of the biggest takeaways of going to Tokyo was that, um, there's a silver lining to everything that we've been going through in our world for the last couple of years, if you look for it, right? Um, for me, that silver lining was that I, because there were no fans and you know, no one was invited to the Olympics, I was literally covering the biggest sporting event that happened in our world Sitting front row mm-hmm. at everything. I mean, I was in front of the beam when Simone Biles mm-hmm. performed. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, watching Katie Ledecky, like with no one in these arenas. Now, yes, as sad as that is, you know, there's nothing we can do about what co- what's happening in our world with COVID. But for me, it was a game changer. I mean, I, I just still can't even believe that I that I got yeah. to go to Tokyo, that I got to watch the best athletes in the world. Um, you know, it was it was really incredible, and, and we worked with a great crew. You know, NBC was awesome. Adam Rippon, who was my co-host yeah. every day on our Twitter so show, fun. Talk in Tokyo, was oh my god, he's he's a, the best human being ever. Um, but we also learned a lot a lot of lessons in Tokyo, watching Simone Biles and just mm-hmm. so many things that are happening. So um, that were happening at that time. But I definitely just still pinch myself when I think about the fact that I, I, I got that opportunity.
0: Let's talk about huge fan. Uh, my makeup artist for Around the Horn listens to Sirius when we're getting ready. She picks like a music channel and we always get ads for a huge fan while we're <laughs> getting ready. Um, and so I was reading up on some of the episodes coming up and you've got quite an array of different celebrities talking about their favorite sports, fa- uh, sports team. Monica, Drew Carey vet Nicole Brown from one of my favorite shows all time community uh, Mel C from the Spice Girls death cap for cuties Ben Gibbard Michelle Williams I didn't even know she was a Chicago Bulls fan um, the one that I freaked out about is Adam Duritz because I'm obsessed with counting crows and he's on to talk about his warriors um, tell me about how this concept came up and and this is your first like full season right.
1: Yeah, my first full season. So last year we did eight episodes. I just got a random email, Sarah. This was, must have been, God, um, it was right after COVID started. And I just got this like random email and um, from someone in Sirius who was like, hey, you know, your name kind of came by us. And we were looking for a host for this show. This is what we're doing. And of course, I'm like, <laughs> you know, they're reading it to me. And I'm like, first of all, what makes you think I'm qualified to um, (laughs) interview celebrities? And then I'm a basketball analyst. Like what if their favorite sport is football or, you know, hockey, which we've had those. Right. But the cool thing about this podcast is I don't have to be the expert. These celebrities are the experts, Sarah. Um, You know, Tim McGraw knows everything about LSU basketball. Like, I mean, football, excuse me. He knows everything. Stats, (laughs) you know, coaches, big moments. Crazy losses. Like, I don't have to be the expert. And it's literally the funnest thing I've ever done because I just sit back and I can just be inquisitive about these teams and, you know, how these celebrities' families became a part, how they became a part of the family tradition with their fandom. And they are huge Fans Like Michael Buble has an ice rink in his basement for his Canucks. It's crazy. So I think the concept is brilliant. I can't take credit for it. It was, you know, serious Pandora, their team, which is, a, is a, it's, it's amazing how many celebrities are like, I absolutely want to talk about my favorite team. Yeah, and sure. um, it's been a lot of fun.
0: Awesome. Very cool. Uh, We got to let you go, but you do have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition is part of ESPN Nation, brought to you by Dr. Pepper. College football is back, and so are the fans. Return to glory with Fansville by Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. It's a speed round of 10 questions that everybody gets. Number one, your current career, all of them are canceled. What job do you do instead? I'm a
1: photographer. Ooh, I love taking pictures. Um, I just bought my first like official Canon. Um, I've, you know, experimented some over the years, but, um, I, I think I have an eye.
0: Nice. Uh, number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? The most scared
1: I've ever been was probably, um, God, that's a tough question. I would say um, when I was in college, I had a a medical issue that uh, could have prevented me from ever playing again and um, had to get a lot of procedures done. I went through, you know, just, it was, it was, a, it was a nightmare of an experience for a 19 year old girl. Um, and I thought I was not gonna be able to play basketball. So that was probably, the, I was fearful of all the procedures but I was more fearful right. that the game was gonna be taken away from me.
0: Yeah. Uh, number three, you could be the best in the world at one thing for one day. What is it?
1: Best thing in the world at one thing for one day. Ooh, I would want to be the best chef and like make amazing food that people never forget.
0: Oh, that's awesome. I've never gotten that one. Uh, Number four, what current celebrity from music, politics, TV, sports, would you most like to be your best friend?
1: Beyonce. I just want to know what perfection feels like. I'll (laughs) never get there. Just be adjacent to it. Yeah, Yeah, I just want to be that close (laughs) to someone so perfect. (laughs)
0: Uh, number five, what's your biggest, most meaningless pet peeve? My
1: biggest, most meaningless pet peeve is when people touch me. I I just don't, when people sometimes come up to you and put their hand on their hand on your shoulder or, you know, like just touch you in some weird way. I mean, you know, high fives, fist pumps, all that kind of stuff, hugs. I love that. But when you unexpectedly just walk up on me and put your hand on me, like you (laughs) might be in trouble. Right, right.
0: (laughs) Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been?
1: Oh, my God. Um, so the most embarrassed I've ever been was I played in an AAU tournament when I was 16 and I was still terrible at basketball. And my team was playing in this game that if we won, we could go to nationals, which was a big deal because that's where you get seen by all the college coaches. And in the waning moments of that game, it was a tie ball game. And I was going for a rebound and I accidentally put the ball into the opponent's <gasps> basket. No. And it was heartbreaking. Like I and my team had been together since they were like five years old. I was the new addition to this team. Oh, so they're no. looking at me like, we want her gone. Now. Oh, brutal. <laughs> oh it's tough. So, it was tough, so
0: brutal. Uh, number seven, what's the thing about yourself? You'd most like to improve
1: prioritizing. I don't do a good job of prioritizing. I mean, my time is divided in ways that at the end of the day, I can't even tell you how we got there. <laughs> so, um, you know, I would like to spend more time with more of the people doing more of the things that are most important to me. Um, and that even, it's not just even your time. That's what you think about. It's what you talk about. It's what you do. I just wish I could push more of those things towards the things that, toward what means the most to me.
0: Yeah. I find it's really hard because work is very easy to schedule because they come looking for you and there's always something that needs to be done. And this sort of vagaries of family or friends or social life, um, they're easier to move around. And because of that, they end up just getting, deleted entirely sometimes on certain days. Um, That's why I have to schedule like giant parties and massive events, because then it's like, I've forced myself to like clear out that whole day to do something fun or to like, I'm I'm not good at relaxing. It's either like go hard over here or like go hard over there. Um, Relaxing is the thing that gets immediately (laughs) deleted from the schedule. Uh, Number eight, any musician or band alive or dead can play at your next party. Who is it?
1: Jay-Z. I've been obsessed with the man since I was 14 years old. Called the radio station just to say hi to him. Stalked him after a concert. I've done all. He's my favorite.
0: Love it. Number nine, what would you consider your biggest failure?
1: My biggest failure was that I did not take my basketball career more seriously. (laughs) As I mentioned earlier on the podcast, um, you know, I was just very... I was. In, I've always been interested in a number of things, mm-hmm. and I just feel like I was never fully committed to being the best player that I could have been. So yeah, there's definitely some regret there, um, because as you know, my job in the seat I sit in um, would be a lot easier if I had gone the extra mile and maybe gone to the WNBA or you know played the next level, even gone to the NCAA tournament would have been nice, um, which. I didn't do any of those things as a player. And so I I do wish I had been more serious about basketball and less serious about my social life in college.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And finally, what three individual words would you most hope that people would use to describe you?
1: I would say inspirational, um, intentional, and um, consistent.
0: Those are good ones. I like those. Uh, final bonus question: Who should I have on this podcast? It doesn't have to be from sports. It can be anyone in the world that I would find interesting.
1: Have you had Natasha Cloud on? I have not. Natasha that's Cloud who I need
0: to have. All right, that's who you need it. to have. On it. Uh, thanks for doing this, Lachan. It was so great to get oh, to know you more. Um, this is awesome. I am. Uh, I'm still fascinated by the 16 kids. And how everybody oh, yeah. got to practices, <laughs> I can barely handle myself and three dogs. So, you
1: know. <laughs> it, it was a lot, you know, it was a lot to juggle. But no, thank you so much for all that you do, Sarah. And, yeah. you know, the way you've d- jumped two feet in with, with WNBA has been a, g- a game changer. Um, and so thank you
0: for all of your support and, and all you that you do, just being who you are. Thanks. You as well. <laughs> That's what she said. Oh, yeah. One more thing. This is a place for rants and raves. I'll complain. I'll say something's awesome. I'll tell you to read or watch or listen to something. Sometimes I'll share a great story you should check out. Really, whatever's on my mind. And since I'm in such a good mood today, and I'm all about keeping my good mood going this week, I'm recommending the two things that have brought me the most joy lately. The latest season of Making It with Amy Poehler, Nick Offerman. Season finale was just a few weeks ago, but um, if you missed it, you can watch the whole season on demand and the previous seasons, which are also delightful. Uh, And then season two of Ted Lasso, the most recent episode to hit Apple TV Plus, is a gem. So fantastic. So if you aren't already watching Ted Lasso, what the hell are you doing with your life? Please catch up. Uh, You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain with questions, guest suggestions, or more. And you can always... Go give me a review and five stars, please, at the iTunes or podcast app. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said.